0: We are in part three of a series called Power Trip, and basically we're going through the book of Acts. We're in chapter 19, verse 23 on today. Um, Yeah, if you missed out on what's been going on, uh, here's a quick recap. Uh, This guy named Paul, he's traveling around the world telling people about the new way of connecting with God, and uh, it's supposed to be good news. It's supposed to be like messages that he's been giving or messages like, hey, guess what? Uh, We could tear down those racial walls now. We, you know, it's not, you know, Christianity this this thing of following God is no longer, it's it's not dependent on race. It's not dependent on the color of your skin, and he thought that was good news, you know, and but it seems like a lot of people don't agree with him, um, and so we are in one of the major cities, and as a matter of fact, a lot of scholars think that this is a section of Acts that is the climax of the story. The person who wrote the book of Acts, his name is Luke. He, he wrote it intentionally so that the tension builds up to this point. So today, Luke is dealing with the issue of evil. And so today we're going to ask this question. What is the source of evil? Where does evil come from? I mean, everybody could agree that we're not living in a perfect world, right? Like, I don't know, maybe politically you're like frustrated, like I can't believe there's so much evil in our country. Some of you, maybe you, got your, uh, you had your Cali converter stolen. You're like, ah, oh, why is there so many evil people in this world? What is the source of evil? Where does this all come from? And as i was thinking about this it reminded me of this man right here his name is george brown he he was he was born in the 1818 died in 1880 he was a um, a politician in britain and when he was young he saw the evil in his world he saw the evil in his society and uh he was looking around and he's like you know i gotta do something about this so he thought you know what i'm gonna do i'm gonna run for office. I'm going to do what I can in my local neighborhood. I think if I'm part of the council of this local city, I, I might be able to make some changes in the rules that were, you know, the systems because I think that's where the evil is. And uh, this is what is written about him. Okay, this is what it says. In, it says, in local politics, even once Brown had been elected to, uh, has been elected to council office, he discovered that neither he nor the council had any real power. Things were decided elsewhere. Like, I thought if I ran for office and I got a high-ranking place in my city, then I might be able to make some changes. It, it turns out his hands were tied. Like, I, I want to make changes, but I can't. Uh, maybe, Maybe if I ran for a different office, maybe a higher place, maybe like governor, maybe like a higher place. So he decided to run for parliament. But Brown said when he got into parliament, he found that members of the parliament didn't have any real power. So he got to a higher place, and he's like, "Oh no, this isn't it. This isn't the place where I could deal with the issues of evil." So um, he's like, "But like, but people have been talking about The People in parliament are the ones who make the decisions." And I mean, like, so he's like, "You know, in parliament, I could talk about things. Like, they they, okay. they could talk, they could vote, but nothing much seemed to change, and the real decisions still seemed to happen somewhere else." So like, okay, maybe maybe if if I Go for a higher place, you know, in, in politics. Maybe I can make change there. So he pushed his way to the front and got into the cabinet. To his amazement, it was the same there also. Like, I, this isn't it. Maybe if I work for a higher place, is you know, in politics. Maybe so. Next slide here we go. And even when he got within one place of the top of the tree to the Deputy Prime Minister under under Harold Wilson, he looked around and still couldn't see where the real power lay. It's like, oh, this isn't it either. Where does the power come from? So, next slide. Everyone just seemed to be doing the next thing that came to hand. Things happened, but it wasn't obvious why. Where was the power? Have you ever felt that? Like, I am going to conquer the, the source of evil, right? I, you know, like, I'm going to 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 protest, maybe that, you know, because if I just protest in front of that one person or that one organization, then the source of evil will be dealt with, right? I mean, we've all, like, every politician has their own version of this question. What is the source of evil? They'll tell you, like, oh, it's the Republicans. Oh, it's the Democrats. Oh, it's, it's the Russians. Oh, it's the whatever, right? You fill in the blank. What is the source of evil? Oh, it must be... Um, it must be this. must be that. And we, we just don't know. And so when we think about it, like, is it, it must, must be a person, right? Because here's the thing. When we think about the origin of evil, when we think about where evil comes from, we think it has to be something tangible because you can't protest against an idea, right? You have to be able to throw somebody in jail, and then at the end of that story, you're like, yay, evil's in jail, now we we could, you know, or even when we think about people like Hitler, right, we're like, if we could destroy Hitler, evil's gone, and, you know, years later, we still have evil in this world, right, but we just love to blame it on people, and so when Paul comes to a place called Ephesus, and he sees evil happening all over the place, he Maybe at first he thought, maybe, like, who is the guy in charge here? Who's the one that's making this happen? Maybe it's Caesar. Maybe it's, you know, maybe it's the governors here. Maybe it's, you know, maybe it's that person down the street. Maybe it's, I don't know, uh, Norm down the street. I don't know, right? And so he's, like, trying to figure it out, and at the end of this his time in Ephesus, he, he stays there for three years and he leaves and then he writes a letter and sends it back to the people in Ephesus to let him know what he thinks about the place. This is what he said about the evil of Ephesus. This is from the book of Ephesians. He says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Flesh and blood is code for people. He's like, guys, I know you think that guy down the street is the source of evil. He is not. Yes, he made some really evil decisions, but I'm convinced that he still has the image of God in him. I do not think he is a source of evil. I do not think that lady who's doing all these things that makes her society worse, I don't think she's the problem either. Yes, they contribute to the evil, but I don't think they're the source of it. Well, what do you think, what, what is the problem, Paul? Like, can you tell us what you think the issue is? Well, the very next verse, he says this. But it's, it's, the problem is against the rulers... The authorities, the powers of this dark world, and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. What he's trying to say here is it's not people. People are not the issue here. Now, some of you, I know like we have a very diverse group of people here. Some of you believe in the existence of a devil. Some of you don't. You're like, oh, what is that about, right? What Paul is trying to say here is not so much like let's define exactly what you know, what it is. It must be the devil because here, by the way, I just want to make a word of warning here. If the first thing you think of when you think about the source of evil, if it goes straight to devil or demon or Satan or whatever, any of those things, right, it's very dangerous. You're playing with fire here, and I'll explain to you why. I've been around enough Christians to say that when you start saying the problem of evil is because of the devil, is because of these spiritual forces that we cannot see. And then you see somebody, maybe a politician that you disagree with, or maybe a person, an activist that you disagree with, or whatever. It's easy for you to make the association and say, therefore, that person must also be controlled by the devil. That person must be controlled by evil spirits. And it's easy to just say, you are a pawn of, the, of Satan, you know, right? And this is exactly what Paul is trying to argue against. He's trying to tell us, guys, we can't point fingers at people. They are not our enemy. They are our friends. These are the people we're supposed to, loving, supposed to be loving on. Jesus loved on the people that were impossible to love on and that's how he made the world a better place. We can't start pointing fingers and saying that person is a pawn of Satan. We can't do that, right? So he says, well, well Paul, then what is the issue here? What is the source of evil? He's like, well, it's like rulers, authorities. It's, it's powers of the dark world, the spiritual forces of evil. What is he, what is he trying to say here? He's, he's saying like, and if you don't believe in the existence of devil or, you know, Satan, um, well, first read the scriptures and maybe you'll re- reconsider. But the words that, that Paul is using here is basically his way of saying, like, it's, well, he's saying this, that evil, the root of evil is, it's invisible. You can't grab it and kick it out of the park and say, evil's gone, guys, <laughs> right? He's saying, I don't know how to explain it. And we're going to understand more of what Paul is trying to say here in the passage that we're going to read today in the book of Acts because of his, his, his experience there. But he's basically saying, you can't, like, it could be, you could call, some people call it systems. The systems in our society might be the cause of evil here. Maybe the culture is the reason that there's evil in this place. Maybe it is a spiritual force that's causing evil in this world. He's like, whatever it is, it's not tangible. It's not something you could grab and just toss it out the window. You can't do that. So how did Paul come to this conclusion? Well, we're going to read one of his stories today in the book of Acts chapter 19, and this is how this story starts. About that time, there arose, and about that time is about 2,000 years ago in Ephesus. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. The way was the name that Christianity went by at, at first. Christianity, what Christians was, was a derogatory term that people used on the way and eventually stuck, and that's why we're called Christians today. But, so that's what's happening here. They were hanging out in Ephesus, and all of a sudden, people started to take notice of the way of these Jesus followers, and they realized that they were causing a disturbance in their society. So what kind of what kind of stuff were they doing? Well, they were loving on people. They were trying to tear down racial barriers. They were loving on the people who were marginalized. They were doing these things, and for some reason, this was considered a disturbance. Well, how is that a disturbance? We'll find out. Let's see. A silversmith named Demetrius who who made silver shrines of Artemis brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. Okay, so remember, there's a guy named Demetrius. His job is to use silver and make these little shrines or little coins that has a shrine emblem on it. And he was selling it to people who would show up to worship Artemis. Okay, so Artemis is a goddess. We'll talk about Artemis in a second. And in case you don't know what we're talking about right now, uh, here's a map. I love maps, okay? So here we go. This is the world. Ephesus is right here on the northern part of of the Mediterranean Sea, and it's a port city. There's a lot of things happening here. Um, It's a place where a lot of people gathered. Uh, Some people would say this is the most important city of Asia Minor. It was the second or third greatest city in the Roman Empire. Rome, Alexandria was probably second, and Ephesus was third. It's a huge city. And it was an important one. As a matter of fact, the biggest bank of the ancient world was found here. You could, find, you could go there and they're like, wow, what's this building? So it was a bank. It's like, well, this is the biggest bank we've ever seen. Now, if you've ever been to Ephesus, okay, you'll probably see this image. Okay? And you're like, whoa, that's cool. Somebody built a pole right there, you know? Okay, well, it used to, be, it used to look a lot nicer. But that pole right there is a remnant of something called the Temple of Artemis. Here's the artist rendering of what that looked like okay? And this is the same Artemis that we're talking about in the book of Acts. So this is the temple. It's one of the seven wonders of the world, of the ancient world. As a matter of fact, when you think about temples that look like this, you might think of Athens, Greece, right? And even the greatest temple in Greece is a quarter of this size. This is huge. You see all these pillars right here? All these pillars? That's one of the pillars that you saw still standing. Each pillar is about, is about like a six foot diameter. So if I were to lie down, and I'm not even close to six feet, so just add like a few more inches on top of me. If I were to lie down, that would be the width of one column, and there's 127 of them inside this temple. Huge, right? So people would travel from around the world to come here to worship Artemis. What does Artemis look like? Well, if you were to walk in, and these, this is an artist rendering, so we're not exactly sure what it looked like. But there are these silver coins with the image of Artemis on it. So let's take a look at the next slide. I know this is like a pixelized image. But if you can look, on the left it says Diane. Over here it says Ephesus. Diane is the Roman name for Artemis. Okay? And if you look in the middle, there's this little statue right here. Okay, And the story goes like this. A long time ago, just north of Ephesus, there was a meteorite Pew, poof, landed. They all gathered around. They looked at it, and they said, whoa, look at that. Look at that big rock that came from the heavens. They're like, no, that's no ordinary rock. That looks like an egg. It's like, no, no, it doesn't look like an egg. It looks like a figure of a woman. Oh, yeah, if you kind of squint and look at it, yeah, maybe it looks like that. And they're like, well, whatever it is, it came from the heavens, so it must be special. So they propped it up with two rods, okay, and if you go to the next slide, here's a more clear image of Artemis. You see these two little rods holding up the, you know and they propped it up inside this temple. They built the temple, they put the, the stone in there, and they came to worship Artemis, or Diana. And they called her, and different cultures give her different attributes. Some cultures say that she is a goddess of wild animals. So a lot of times, if you look at Diana, you look at Google, You'll find like images of like goats and bulls and you know all these animals hanging out lions right the goddess of wild animals but in other cultures they call her the goddess of hunting which I think is like a conflict of interest <laughs> right <laughs> goddess of wild animals yay and hunting no okay uh, goddess of the moon like right here there's a moon right here she's a goddess of the moon uh, and here's another contradiction um, they would say that some people say she is the goddess of chastity but she's also the goddess of fertility so. I guess you know when in rome right okay so (laughs) so people traveled all from all around at least from all of asia minor to travel here some people from africa from rome from greece they will come here to worship artemis okay so demetrius his job is to build little silver he was a craftsman he builds things to sell on the market he and his artisans okay so he that's artemis i mean not artemis demetrius He called them together along with the workers in related trades and said, you know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. Like, this is our job, right? Like, because of Artemis, we we are employed. Good. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in particularly the whole province of Asia. Like, we have a world market here. The whole world comes to us to buy our stuff. This is really important to us, and Paul is destroying it. Well, h- how is Paul destroying your your market? This is what Paul claims to say. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all, in, 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 implying Paul is basically implying, yeah, this is a sham. Like this whole temple thing, this whole city, this whole place that's built on that one rock. Yeah, that's not real. I mean, you had to prop it up with rods. Like, I, it's not basically this is Paul's way of saying why do you bow down and worship things that you could make at home like oh he's like he makes a good point there but we don't want to tell anybody that because if we do then we lose our jobs right so next slide there is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be desecrated next slide and the goddess herself who was worshipped through the, throughout the province of Asia and the world will be robbed of her divine majesty. It's like, this is so profitable. We have the largest bank because of this rock. And Paul is undoing it. So what is the issue that's going on here? So here's a little diagram that might help us understand. There's a problem in this world. okay. In the first century, not just in Ephesus, but all around the first century, um, infantile death was very, very common. Mothers will lose their lives in giving birth, and that was common. Um, Your treasured child may not make it past the first birthday, that was common. But we have this goddess of fertility this goddess who protects wild animals and hunts them down sometimes i don't know right but there is a goddess that maybe if we bow down to this goddess and we offer it and give it money or whatever and you know then maybe our child has a better chance of survival okay so that's the solution here's a solution guys you come and buy our stuff and you offer it as an offering to to diana or you know um, artemis then you're, you have a higher chance of survival. It's like, okay, thanks for the solution. And because we have a solution, we can market it, and that becomes our economy. As people come, they probably need to stop by at our restaurant so they could eat something, a place to stay, so they have a hotel, a motel, or whatever they have back then. right? And uh, they could buy our stuff, our silver shrine things that we built. Okay, right? And But this is the same for almost every world. Like, for example, when we talk about the sadder parts of American history, we think about slavery, right? We come to this land, there's a lot of land, we're farmers, but we can't take care of the entire plantation on our own. So what do we need to do? There's a problem, so there's a solution. We need to ship over some people who are different than us and make them work for free for us, right? And they create a whole economy out of that. I mean, you can think about it in terms of cars also, right? We have, a lot of us, don't work within walking distance from where we work, right? So that's the problem. Solution, we have cars. And so we have a whole economy based off of, yes, I, I live 30 miles away, but I could still come to work for you, so you're hired, you know, and here you have to buy gas for they to get your car checked. You have a whole system, economy, built on that simple idea, right? That solution. So the simple idea here is our economy is built upon the world as it is at that time in history. Okay. But here's a problem with that. A disruption of what the world of a disruption of that world often jolts the economy. So if somebody were to say, you know, the cars, they, they emit a lot of pollution, we might need to stop using cars. And they're like, wait a minute, our entire economy is built on that car. We, we we can't do that, right? Or if somebody were to say, hey, we have to um, yeah, we we think that Slaves are also people, and because they're people, I mean, they have the image of God in them, so I don't think we should be treating them that way. But our farm, our our economy is built on the the shoulders of these people. We can't get rid of them, right? It jolts the economy when you find a solution to that original problem. And in this story, what we're discovering is there are people, like babies, who are dying really young, and they think the solution to that is, hey, maybe if we worship This this stone, then maybe we have a better chance of survival. In comes Paul the Apostle. He prays in the name of Jesus, and all of a sudden, evil spirits are leaving people, people are being healed, people are surviving. And they're saying, hey, guess what? We don't need that stone anymore. And if we don't need Diana or or Artemis, if we don't need that anymore, then um, people aren't going to come from all around the world to come visit us. They're not going to stay at our hotels. They're not going to buy our food. They're not going to... Well, they're not going to buy our little silver shrine things that we built so they could buy it and offer it as an offering. So, what do we do? In other words, good news often threatens economies built on bad news. If we're making money, we're making our living off of the assumption that people are going to make mistakes, and all of a sudden there's a way to fix that mistake, then your job is in jeopardy. Are you guys following? This is what's happening here, and Demetrius is not going to sit around and just let this whole thing happen to him. Okay, so scholar Willie James Jennings, this is what he says about these people. Demetrius has evoked a powerful mix and a winning strategy for fostering hatred and mindless violence. Eventually, you're going to find out that Demetrius, he leads everybody into a riot. If you want people to hate deeply, then suggest that someone threatens their financial stability and their theological beliefs. Like, if you really want people to go and do a riot, you know, if, they want, if you want people to get angry, even murder somebody, this is how you start it. You first let them know that what you thought was stable is now unstable. Next slide. If you want people to be willing to kill without hesitation, which is a scary thing, suggest that these enemies will weaken their social and political standings. I mean, let's be honest. Yes, Paul is coming into Ephesus with good news. But you have to admit, it's actually bad news to a lot of people, right? So good news is not always good news to everybody. Even though in the bigger picture, it is good news for all humankind, the people who are presented with that jolt in the economy, it's really bad news for them. Next slide. Once this logic is unleashed on a people, no people has the power to resist its powerful impulse because... It conjures the spirit of fear and failure and reminds people of their vulnerability as creatures in this world. You see, this is what Luke is trying to tell us in this story, that good news often exposes our vulnerabilities. It helps us understand how much of ourselves we've invested in the fact that people are broken. And you know what? Humanity will do anything, absolutely anything, to cover up or even ignore their vulnerabilities. Don't we? We do that all the time. Maybe we're saying, like, I don't want to deal with my vulnerabilities with my pain or whatever, so I'm just going to go watch a movie and just escape from it. I'm going to buy some expensive, nice-looking clothes so the people. When they look at me, they see nice clothes and not my vulnerabilities. I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, I'm going to do all these things, I'm going to post the best pictures out of my, my photos I've taken, I'm never going to post the ones that humiliate me, I'm just going to take the pictures that make me look good, post it on social media so that everybody thinks my life is perfect. We do this all the time. So let's see what happens in Ephesus. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. This is a chant that they said often back then, okay? So, and, And then the riot begins. Next slide. Soon, the whole city was in an uproar. That means riot. The people seized Gaius and, how do I say this? Aristarchus, Aristarchus. sure. Okay, (laughs) I think you're right. Okay, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theater together. So they captured two people, they threw them into the theater, and they started, like, pouncing on them. Right, so William James Jennings, when he said, you know how people are chanting like "greatest Artemis of the Ephesians," this is this is what he says about this: the crowd is a creature exposed in its vulnerability. So, next slide. Nationalistic slogans, religious incantations, or enthusiastic cheerings are used to conceal this vulnerability. It's almost like somebody saying "la la la," I don't hear you, I don't hear you. Paul's like, guys. I have good news for you. It's like that, 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 greatest power, you know, like, like you're just chanting over and over because it covers, it hides it. It helps you ignore the vulnerabilities in our lives. You don't realize how dependent we are on our jobs. And then one day you can't work anymore and you realize how vulnerable you are. And when somebody confronts that with you, you're like, nope, nope, not hearing it. Nope, 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 oh, I found another job. Okay, I don't have to worry about that anymore. Right, this is just who we are. This is what, this is the issue of humanity. And what the scholar is saying is this that we will do anything. We will believe and do anything to protect and ignore our vulnerabilities. This is just who we are. And you know what's the scary thing about this is? I mean, this is like, this is scary, and and just with this is scary, right? But here's the thing that I want to warn us as a church because the church is not exempt from this. The church does this all the time. And if you see me doing this, you need to confront me on this, okay? Because I have seen churches take advantage of people by saying, hey, I see your vulnerability. You're afraid of dying. Come to our church because we'll deal with it. Oh, hey, I, 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 you, your marriage is falling apart? Oh, you should come to church because I know we're going to pray on your vulnerabilities and let you know that we, you know, like, like the fear of danger. You're worried that your kids are going to have bad influences? Oh, you should come to church every single Sunday because if you do that, then, you know, you have a better chance of not ending up in jail or something like that, right? Like that's... Some of the promises that churches make. One of my old mentors in college used to say this. It's like, to do you know the secret sauce in making your church grow? I'm like, I'm all ears. Tell me, tell me. I might be a pastor one day. Tell me, tell me. It's like, this is what you do. You go to your neighborhood, and you ask them what are their wants and what are their fears. And when they tell you, you say, you should come to our church because that's what Jesus takes care of. It's like, trust me, people will come start coming to your church. And I'm like, okay, are you telling me this because you don't want me to do that, or are you telling me this and I should do that? He's like, well, you should decide that on your own. And I decided, no, we're not going to pray on people's fears, okay? And if I do that, please call me out on it. But this is the thing, guys. When Paul was confronted with this issue, when he saw this happen in Ephesus, he had to ask the question, what is the source of evil? This is the question we started with. What is the source of evil? Is it evil? Is it a person? Is it a system? Is it a culture? Is it, uh, in today's world, is, is it media? Uh, it, or No, you know what? The people, media, they do that stuff because they can make more money. It must be money, the love of money. And Paul even says that. In one of his later letters, he writes to this guy named Timothy. He says, you know what I have discovered after traveling the world? The root of all evil is the love for money, right? But you can't just say money because we, I mean, we, we look at a guy named Demetrius and say, dude, that guy's just so messed up. Right, he just loves money. That's all that he cares about. But also think about it this way: What if he has like nine kids, and he has to somehow take care of them, and he was already struggling as it was, and maybe he's not doing it for greed reasons. He's maybe doing it to help his family. We can't just put him in a box and say, "Oh, anybody who wants money over this, you know, like evil." No, no, no. So maybe it's not money. Maybe it's fear—the fear of losing everything, the fear of losing your family. Maybe somebody getting sick, and you're not having enough. Income or resources to take care of that person. Or maybe it's powers. People who are doing these things just because they just want more, have more power in their lives. Paul's like, I, I don't know what it is. But you know what? What I do know is that it is not. It is not flesh and blood. It's not people. Because people are a, a result. It, 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 people are beings that are raised in a certain culture. Like we talk about the evils of Hitler, right? But I would say this. If you were born into that family, if you were given the same circumstances, if you had the same education as he did, and if you were rejected from the same art school that he was, and if you were given the right kind of of influences that he received, chances of you becoming just like him is almost, the, it's really high up there. We're all victims of our own time. And Paul realized that. Demetrius, he was raised, he, like, we can't just point our fingers and say, if we, get, if we kick him out of this world, if we kill him, if we do, then no more evil in Ephesus. And Paul's like, that's not the issue here. He's like, I've seen so much stuff happen in this world to know that people are not the issue. It's the things in this world that we can't, it's not tangible, it's, it's the rulers, it's the authorities, powers in darkness, it's the spiritual forces of evil that raise the people in this city that cause them to be this way. Well, Paul, what are we supposed to do about this? If it's not something tangible, if we can't kill it, if we can't get rid of it, if we can't throw it into jail, what are we supposed to do with this evil in this world? What are we supposed to do? Well, it's like Paul's like, well, we're not here to get rid of evil. What? Yeah, our job is to make sure that we don't contribute to the evil that's already happening in this world. Well, how do we do that, Paul? Well, the very next verse tells us. Therefore, for this reason, because we know it's not about people, but it's about the forces in this world that's causing people to be this way. Because of that, put on the full armor of God. Oh, what's that? Full armor of God. Like, Like, is Demetrius making that too? Can we buy it from him? No, no. It's like, it's symbolic, and we'll talk about that in a second, right? So that when the day of evil comes, and the day of evil is not like a specific date. It's not like December 6th or, you know, it's not a date. The implication here that Paul is saying, st- stating here is everybody will eventually come to a fork in the road where you know what the right decision is, but at the same time, if you take, but if the other one you know is not the right decision, but it will help support you, your family, it's easy to justify and say, I'm going to take this road over here. Yes, it's bad for our society, but I just need this in my life right now. It's like when you ever come to that day when evil could get a grasp of your heart, at that point, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Like, if you put on this armor of God, you're going to be able to withstand those temptations, make the right decisions when these things come come across to you. So what is the armor of God? Well, in the next few verses, he lists it for us. I've listed it for you right here. It's the belt of truth, breastplate of righteousness, feet fitted with gospel of peace, shield of faith, helmet of salvation, sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Now, I'm going to go over each one of these things, because we have a few more minutes. Okay, here we go. I was going to zoom right through this, but I think we have some time. Okay. I think a lot of times we over-spiritualize these things, and sometimes it's the some mistakes in the way we translate it. So I'm going to go through this quickly, and I'm going to try to make sure it's not confusing. <laughs> okay. So first, belt buckle of truth. In a, in, a, in a soldier back then, everything that they needed was hanging off their belts. The truth that he's talking about are the truth of the message of Jesus. Okay, Jesus taught that, you know, when somebody hits you on the right cheek, we'll turn your other cheek. He said if somebody steals your things, like your coat, give them your garment also, right? How many times am I supposed to, am I, am I supposed to forgive somebody, ask somebody, ask Jesus? He's like, well, infinitely. Keep forgiving them. Generosity. These are the things that everything comes off. So everything else that we're going to talk about is going to be hanging off this truth that what Jesus taught is the truth that we need to live by. That's the belt of truth. Breastplate of righteousness. For those of you who've been here with us for a while, you know that the Hebrew word and the Greek word, actually, for righteousness is also translated as justice. In the Hebrew, uh, well, I'm not, okay, yeah. So, right, so righteousness is making sure that the world is the way it's supposed to be. If you see injustice happen, you have to fix it. That is the breastplate of righteousness. Next, we have the gospel of peace. The gospel of peace, and in, in Ephesus, there's a lot of racism that was happening. People are like, we're on this side of the line, we're on that side of the line. And he says, whenever you come across a division, your goal should be to create peace amongst the group of people that's in, that's between you and the other group of people. So whenever you see some kind of brokenness in society, instead of saying, well, I'm taking this side and you're gonna take that side, no, 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 you're gonna be the one that's in the middle, trying to bring the two together. Shield of faith. The word faith in the Greek is the word pistis. Faith basically means that, um, uh, okay, the way that that Paul words this is that when the enemy shoots at you, these flaming arrows, in those days, flaming arrows, they take a piece of arrow, they dip it in tar, they light it on fire, and they shoot it, and if it gets inside of you, it starts to burn you from the inside out. And Paul says this is kind of like how doubt works. Whenever you come to that fork in the road and you're like, yes, this is what Jesus wants me to do, but I'm really, I really want to go this way because by going this way, you know, I will have a comfortable life a little bit longer. If I go this way, I might be homeless. I might lose everything. I might be uncomfortable. I don't know if I want to do it. It's like maybe what Jesus taught me wasn't truth. Maybe what Jesus taught me was just a suggestion. He doesn't know what I'm going through right now. And he's like, that's going to start growing inside of you like a flaming arrow that's inside of you. So put up your shield of faith. Make sure that 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 doubt doesn't grow inside of you. Do everything you can to keep that in check. Helmet of salvation. Contrary to what a lot of people think that this word means here, it doesn't mean a helmet that takes you to heaven. Okay, that's not what salvation means. Salvation here means that for a long time, your heart was captive to the evil one. That whenever you made decisions, it was just for you, and you weren't thinking about the people around you. As followers of Jesus, he has... Broken those chains, and now you are now captivated by Jesus' hands. He has your heart in his hand. Just remember, anytime you feel like you're tempted to go the other route, remember, you're not a prisoner to that decision. You can always choose right. You can always choose to do the right thing. And then finally, this is interesting because the armor of God, they're all defensive equipment, except for the the sword right here. Is the first offensive thing. There's only one of them. And here's the kicker, okay? This is the only thing right here that's a weapon. But if you look at what it is, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, here's another mistranslation that I think a lot of us make. When you think about the word of God, you think about the Bible. Paul the apostle never refers to the Bible as the word of God. What? Yeah, okay. Whenever most New Testament writers, when they write the words word of God, they're referring to Jesus. John 1 says, in the beginning was the word. Jesus is referred to as the word of God. So, what is Paul trying to say here? He's saying this. If you look at this list, I'll go back. If you look at this list, there's truth, righteousness, gospel of peace, uh, faith, salvation, and Jesus. You're looking at that list, and as you, when you get to the very bottom one up there, you're like, wait a minute. We just described who Jesus is. Jesus is all these things. So Paul, you're telling me that the way that I'm going to face the evils of this world and the way I'm going to defeat evil, next slide, is through Jesus. And these people who heard this message, they also understood that the spirit that was in Jesus that rose him from the grave is the same spirit that's activating us today, right? So whatever when Paul says Jesus is the way to defeat evil, Jesus is the way to make sure that we make the right decisions in life. They're also equating that to themselves, saying, wait a minute, it's not just the way to defeat evil is through Jesus. It's also becoming like Jesus. The more we start to emulate the way that Jesus lived his life through sacrifice, through generosity, through inclusion of people who are on the outside, when we start doing that, when we focus our hearts on making sure that we don't get swayed by the ways of the world, but but instead we're swayed by the decisions that Jesus made and set examples for us, he said, then, at that point, we are now able to withstand the evils of the world. So this is huge, right? Like, when you think about evil, and you're thinking, well, should I do this that supports me and only me? Or should I do this that doesn't support me, but will support a lot of more people in this world? When healing is actually a good thing. Think, think about this, okay? Demetrius is thinking about his family, and that's, that's very important. But we're also talking about Paul coming to this world and then saying, hey guys, when I pray over you guys, it seems that people are healed. For Demetrius, somebody being healed is a threat to him which sounds ludicrous to us, right? Like healing is a good thing, but it jolts his economy. Being less dependent on things that cause pollution in this world is a good thing, unless you work for a company that, you know, that's all about that, right? <laughs> I mean, you have to think about it from both perspectives, and you probably heard people from politicians from both sides talk about this, and they're always fighting. And what Paul is saying here is, Guys, if you stick to the ways of Jesus, if you are willing to say, yes, my family is going to suffer for this, but it's better for this world, he says, then you need, to, you need to do the right thing. I know that's a really hard message. So I want to leave you with two questions, two questions that might help us find ourselves in this story. The first question is this. Are you dehumanizing someone because you are convinced they are the source of evil? This is exactly what Paul is telling us not to do. He's telling us, oh, that politician is a source of evil. And when you do that, when you start saying that this person is of the devil or whatever, what you're doing is you're dehumanizing that person. You are robbing that person of the image of God that's inside of them. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. We're called to love on people like that. Okay, so first question is, do we tend to dehumanize people because we're convinced that they're the source of evil? Second question. Do you have the armor of God on to withstand the evil of this world? Do you find yourself always making the wrong decisions, decisions that serve you only, but doesn't serve the rest of the people in your community? Again, these are really tough questions to answer, but it helps you understand where you are in this battle that's happening, that's way, this crazy battle of, for your heart, basically. Are you taking the side of Jesus? contributing to the solutions of this world and are you or are you contributing to the problems of this world not necessarily with an evil heart you might be just doing that to make sure that your family's okay and we totally understand that so it's not so black and white is it it's very complicated and Luke who wrote the book of Acts is telling us and this is why it's so important for us to continually look to Jesus because he is the one that's going to help us see things a lot clearer Amen? All right, let's pray.